I lost a lot more. I gave up a lot more in gains by selling those early than I ever lost in the tech pool. Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever. Stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risk. But to win big, you've got to reduce it. My name is Andrew Stotts from A. Stotts Investment Research, and I'm here with featured guest Tariq Dennison. Tariq, are you ready to rock? Am I ever. Let's go, Andrew. Oh, yeah. So, Tariq is a Hong Kong-based manager of U.S. and offshore retirement plans at his own firm, GFM Asset Management. Prior to GFM, he worked with the Wealth Management Divisions of Societe Generale in Hong Kong, CIBC in Toronto and London, Bear Stearns and J.P. Morgan in New York. And after that, prior to that, he had a few years at Silicon Valley. Tarek holds a master's in financial engineering. Oh my God, that sounds hard. From the University of California at Berkeley, that made it sound even harder. And a bachelor's in mathematics and the history of philosophy from Marquette University and is visiting professor of fixed income and alternative investments at ESSEC Business School in Singapore. He is an IFPHK certified financial planner professional and the author of the book, Invest Outside the Box. I love the title. He is a frequent speaker on RTHK Radio 3's Money Talk, HKIBN Cable News All About Money, and a multiple public conferences on ETFs, investor education, and retirement plans. And he also has some unique language abilities, which we didn't get to. So, Rick, <laughs> take a minute and fill in any further tidbits about your life. Certainly. You did great about covering a lot of my professional and number geek uh, bio highlights, but as you also know, I'm quite the avid foodie and quite the avid traveler. So on the flip side of an episode of my worst investment ever, I want to say my best investment ever is taking really adventurous trips with my kids to the frontiers of northwestern China, Vietnam, and other places where you can still ride unair-conditioned trains on really rickety train tracks. You can read all about it on uh, some of my travel and food blogs. Fantastic. And um, one thing about you that I found as we've got to know each other is you have a much wider view than most Americans that I've met. And you've got Chinese language abilities, number one, but also I've really noticed that your perspective is a global perspective. Maybe you could just tell the audience kind of like, where did that come from? And how does that, I know you grew up not your whole life, you haven't grown up in the U.S. So tell us just a little bit, a little tidbit about kind of where that all came from. Oh, certainly. Well, as you know, I was born in Italy. I grew up on U.S. Army bases in Germany. I got a front row seat to seeing the Soviet Union collapse in front of my eyes when I was in high school. So very much, I think I had that international perspective just growing up in a place where we could get on a train, get down to Italy, get over to France, pop over to the U.K. To me, that was just normal growing up. I had visited 60 countries by the time I'd left high school. I only hit 90 recently. My 11-year-old has already visited 65 countries. So part of it is, I think, the natural desire to see the different parts of the world, see the different areas of what's going on. Of course, as well, from a food and a currency perspective, my interest in finance started at the age of six when I moved to Germany, and I saw my allowance go, uh, go in value as the Deutschmark as the U.S. dollar went from 3.2 Deutschmarks to the dollar to 2.5 Deutschmarks to the dollar. I was six years old when that happened, and that tells you exactly how old I am. Fantastic. What got you into Chinese, by the way? 
Well, it's hard not to think it's an important language going forward. I, I think obviously when I was 10 years old, I thought Russian or Japanese would be one of the more important languages to learn. My early textbooks in social studies back in elementary school showed that the Soviet Union was going to surpass the U.S. economy by the mid-1990s. And certainly even by the late 1980s, Japan was on track to surpass the, the U.S. Now that's certainly the consensus view of what we think about China, but China has much larger numbers working in its favor and certainly a much faster growth story. One of the main reasons I live here in Hong Kong is I want my kids to have a front row seat to the growth story in China the same way I did to the East-West divide in Europe in the 1980s. That's awesome. That's very awesome. I remember my sister in high school studied Russian. Yes, so that takes us back. Well, now it's time to share your worst investment ever. And since no one goes into the worst investment thinking it will be, tell us a bit about the circumstances leading up to it and then tell us your story. Well, certainly. I hope not to sound like a bit of a cop-out, but as I mentioned, I've got not one, but a three-part worst investment ever story. We'll allow it. Thank you, Andrew. <laughs> and it spans about 20 years. Really what you're talking about is you're talking about my whole early investment career, the first 20 years of my investment, and the three stages of mistakes that have made me the investor that I am today. Now, first of all, I'll start with where I started investing. I started working and investing, made my first money in Silicon Valley in the late 1990s. And that probably already gives most of your listeners a great idea on what my first worst investment was. I was invested heavily in tech stocks of companies that I thought I knew because either I worked with them or my friends worked with them and we saw these names, they were going public, they were moving. I was buying these companies because I thought I understood their business or I saw the pattern of where they were going. And like many others, I lost money in those tech stocks, but that would not qualify as my worst investment ever because it was early, the numbers were small, in total I lost less than $10,000. The only takeaway I have from that is that a portion of that was in my tax-exempt retirement account, which I highly recommend being careful with when you do your, your overall tax planning. So my lesson number one from that was simply know the financial reasons of why you're buying something. I bought these companies because I thought I knew the companies and I knew the business models, but that was before I learned how to do proper financial analysis and know how you don't make money by buying things at 500 times earnings or when there's no E to begin with. That was stage one. Now, naturally, I was still in my early 20s at this point. At the next stage, I took, went all the way extreme to the other level. I was overly concerned with financials. I needed companies with lots of cash, good dividends, good earnings, and I especially loaded up heavy on two stocks that you might be a little bit familiar with. One was a company called Apple Computer. The other was a company called Philip Morris. If you know anything about those two companies, you know they have been some of the best performing stocks in the past 20 years. Needless to say, my worst investment part two was selling those way too early. So I bought a lot of each of those companies at $20 a share between the year 2000 and 2002. I sold all of my positions in both of them when they hit $50 a share. So in both of them, I made 150% return. I was happy, but clearly I lost a lot more. I gave up a lot more in gains by selling those early than I ever lost in the tech pool. So now, at this point, I go to Berkeley and I get a master's degree in financial engineering because I feel I'm interested enough in this field, I wanna do it professionally, I wanna really understand the world-class way, how do you analyze investments, how do you put together portfolios? The problem that came out of that, combining lessons one and two, is that it made my approach very, very complicated. 
So I came out with a very, very rigorous system about how I would go through checklists, how I would do risk limits, how I would be very careful in constructing a portfolio, running beta analysis, running VAR calculations. And to be fair, of all of the methods I've, worked, I've used so far, that one works the best. It's extremely systematic, it's extremely disciplined, but the problem with it is that it's very, very complicated. And it would be hard to say what part of it is my worst investment ever, other than the amount of time that I put into it. Now, my great relief in that is within the past few years, firms like BlackRock have been able to take a lot of those discipline checklists that I run on financial quality, valuation, low risk, and apply them directly within an ETF that I can now buy for 20 basis points. So what that's done is it's freed up a lot of what I've done that's relatively complicated, and it lets me go back to hopefully finding the next Apple and the next Philip Morris, where the lesson in all of that was knowing what I was buying and why it was going to make substantially more money than I was putting into it. Got it. Fantastic. Well, I think you've done a great job at bringing those through the progression of that. So let's just review, like, what lessons did you learn from this experience? So lesson number one in the first case was knowing a financial reason why I would be making an investment. And I have to have this conversation all the time with people who said they found an interesting investment, interesting development, and interesting technology, is to know a financial reason why you're buying something. So in other words, if you're going to be putting $100 into an investment, is that investment going to be making $10 a year for the next 10 years? Or is it maybe going to lose money up front, but you see where it's going to get to making $20 a year and eventually giving you a return in financial terms. That's the numbers geek in me, which is natural to me. I was fortunate to learn that early on. That was one. The other one is don't be too quick to sell. So you could say my first mistake was buying too high. My second mistake was selling too low, or in this case, too early and too much. Even if I had held on to a fraction of my Apple or Philip Morris shares, I would have done much better than simply selling all of them. And frankly, there was no reason at that age that I should have sold all of them. I didn't need the money. I didn't need extra compliance clearance from my employer to just simply hold on to stock that I already held. They were paying dividends. I, I, would, have, I would have simply made money that way. Um, so if I had a good asset, there's no reason to hold on to it so long as it was, it was, was within limits. And the third one was to simply keep it simple and focus on your edge. That's where I go back to Peter Lynch's book, One Up on Wall Street. I would love to look for cases like Legs Pantyhose, where things that I see every day things that I can understand and I can see how they make money, I feel I have a better edge on their valuation than, than my counterparts do. Fantastic. Well, let me uh, summarize some of my takeaways from what you've talked about. What I think your first point about know the financial reason, I think one of the things is that many people think, hey, I really understand this company or I like it or I really know it. And you know, all of that knowledge may mean nothing because you've got to understand the market, the share price, you know, there's so much more. So I think that's one thing that I really take away is that whenever you're looking at investing, you want to look at the whole picture. And don't and get the difference between a great company and a great stock. Exactly. exactly. Course. Yep. yep. <laughs> the other one is, this one's kind of hard, you know, your second one about selling, you know, when you make a good return, I mean, come on, that, you made good returns on Philip Morris and Apple. You know, number one, you have the feeling like you want to capture that. Number two, you also build up some confidence. Like, hey, I'll do that in another stock. I'll find the next Philip Morris or Apple or whatever. I'm just curious, like, from my thinking about it, 
how do you think about that now? If you were in that same situation, how do you think about that now? I'm in the exact same situation fairly frequently. I can tell you about two more recent examples where I've applied how I've really learned my lesson. The two more recent examples was one a real estate investment trust called Corrections Corporation of America, now known as Core Civic. Mm. They are a re special real estate investment trust that runs the properties on which privately run prisons are run. They're a somewhat controversial REIT, but they were extremely undervalued going into the 2016 election. Very much, I believe, on the belief that if Hillary Clinton won the election, they would have been reform around the laws of private prisons. When Trump was elected, that REIT more than doubled in value within two months. Now, I wasn't expecting that. That wasn't the reason for holding it. The reason I held it was it had an 11% dividend yield. And even if they weren't run as prisons, the assets still had value. So to me, it still ran all my checklists as a good investment. Now, as soon as it doubled, I sold half. It wasn't, now again, that was where I learned my lesson. I didn't sell all of it, but I sold half so that in theory, I was now playing with what you call house money. So that was my own recent application of exactly what I learned earlier, was it's not all or nothing. So, so long as I bring it down to limits, I bring it down to what was the amount of money that I thought was a reasonable investment and does it still meet my thesis? Yes, it does. Another recent example was Boeing. The fundamentals behind that were somewhat different, but I did the exact same thing. I still believe it is a good company. As it's gone up, I've trimmed my position and taken some profits, but I haven't sold all of it. I love that. I mean, it's a great takeaway, which is the idea of moving in and out of positions slowly. You don't have to jump in. You know, and a lot of the mistakes that people make that I've interviewed is that they find an idea, they get excited about it. They may do some research, sometimes they don't, but then they just put all of their money in it. Or they, they say, okay, I want this to be 20% of my portfolio. And then instantly it's 20% of their portfolio. Why not do 3% and watch it for a couple of weeks? Give yourself some time. You've already got some exposure to it now. Give yourself some time to do a little bit more thinking about it. Get your devil advocate, you know, hat on. So I like that. That's very helpful. And the last thing, I like what you said about the idea of focusing on your edge. I mean, when I started as an analyst, it was 1993. You know, these types of products that you've described, like an ETF that's performing, you know, a certain type of analysis or a value ETF or momentum ETF, you know, these instru instruments just didn't exist. So you had to do it on your own. But what you're highlighting, and I think you're a great, actually a great example of it, is that you can sit in Hong Kong and take care of clients and help them think about their investing. And you've got time for that if you've got other financial participants that are creating the great products, but also at great trading costs, you know, all these different things. We're in a world where you can really, you can, let's say, I don't, I'm not saying, I don't want to really say the word outsource, but you can work with partners where just couldn't have done it. And maybe 10 or 15 years ago, it just would have been too expensive, even though the products were there. So I think that would be my, I love the idea of focusing on your edge and we now have the ability to do that. So for the listeners out there, what's your edge and how can you delegate or outsource what is not your edge to a reliable provider mm -hmm. so that you can come back and focus on your edge? Great lesson. Well, and the other way I would summarize it as well, pretty much same lesson, but in different words, is respect the value of your own time. For many of your listeners, one of your greatest assets that you're likely to undervalue is the value of your own time. If you like spending your time actually reading financial statements and valuing companies, 
that is different than somebody who is busy and is happy either letting a professional or a robo-advisor take care of an automatic investment program. It's interesting because I also know that at all of our conversations, you've really built tremendous amount of knowledge for Americans, particularly outside of America. And you've focused in on some areas that are really hard for, you know, when it comes to, you know, 401ks and when it comes to tax implications, when it comes to execution implications. These are valuable knowledge and service that you provide to American investors outside of America and in Asia and all that. And you couldn't do it if you had to be sitting there managing that phenomenally impressive model, I'm sure that you created, as you said, detailed, systematic way, but you wouldn't have time to do what the client actually probably values more is your time helping them with their situation. Certainly. I, I mean, I, in our last conversation, I was telling you that my actual investment product, my actual investment portfolio is the third most important things a lot of clients come to me with. The first and foremost is simply the discipline to get it done. The number one difference between whether or not someone has a million dollar retirement account is whether they put money in the account early on, not whether they invested in stocks or bonds or international or value or growth. It was whether they simply had the discipline to, to save regularly and, and not do stupid things. And the second thing is just making sure that we have the proper tax structuring and that we take care of accounts in the right way. There is another enormous difference between having something in a taxable account and a tax-free account and being able to touch it and not being able to touch it. Yes, I love that because for me myself, when I'm trying to learn or take care of something in my life, I really, I need somebody that can help me get there. I don't need the information. You know, the world is full of books about how to lose weight. So is everybody skinny? No, we need helps. We need nudges. We need that type of thing. So I, I like that. So based upon what you've learned from these stories and what you continue to learn, what one action would you recommend our listeners take to avoid suffering the same fate? So let's take it down to a young person who's coming up in the world of finance uh -huh. and they're trying to make decisions and allocate their resources. What one piece of advice would you give them? Well, the one piece of advice would be, again, to keep it simple and, and know your edge. So if you've got a real edge on an investment opportunity in front of you, let's say, for example, your friend has a startup and is asked, do you want to invest $50,000 in it? If you are interested enough and know enough about the financials to do the due diligence on it and keep it within your risk limits, by all means do that within limits. If you have the time to do that on an entire diversified portfolio of 20 to 50 stocks and bonds, that's a different level. But otherwise, you can leave that default to a professional. And so my one thing, my one lesson is know the value of your time and know what edge you really have versus anyone else who's trying to compete with you on it. It's uh, great advice for everybody out there. There's a book I recently read called The One Word, I think it is. Like, what is your one word? And I think that helped me. My word is relentless. Mm. And, but I think that when you start to really tear it down about who you are, what you're passionate about, but more importantly, where you can really add value, because unfortunately, there's an additional factor. And that is, what does the market value? Mm -hmm. If you can add value in a certain area, but the market doesn't value that, well, that may be a bit of a different situation. So last question, what's your number one goal for the next 12 months? 
number one goal for my next 12 months is very much professional, is to continue to grow my business and fight the good fight, spread the good word. I guess what you were saying back on the question of diet books, I've written my diet book. My plan right now is to actually serve more healthy meals and make sure that I get those healthy meals you know, onto the trays, into the lunch boxes of those that need the financial nutrition that I'm providing, whether it's a question of U.S. tax efficiency, international diversification, or simple income generation. That's a, a big business, a big uh, job, as you know, in, in building a business like that. Fantastic. Well, for the listeners out there, if you just want the healthy meals, you don't need the textbook on why they're healthy. Check out the show notes. We'll have all the information so that you can get in touch. So listeners, there you have it. Another story of loss to keep you winning. To find more stories like this previous episodes and resources to help you reduce your risk, visit myworstinvestmentever.com. Now, as we wrap up, Tarek, thank you again for coming on the show. I know it's painful talking about our losers, but our listeners are learning to win as a result. Do you have any parting words for the audience? Absolutely. You got to tell the listeners your single summary word, which is relentless. My single summary word would probably be curious. And that's one thing that I've often been complimented on. So I still consider myself quite young. And I often say what keeps me young is having that curiosity and that interest in learning and humility to know what, what I don't know. So the one parting word to listeners is, you know, be open, be curious, be honest with yourself and, you know, re respect every day you get the chance to learn something. Yes. So uh, there was a pretty famous guy that said, stay hungry. I think we can end this with stay curious. And that's a wrap on another great story to help us create, grow, and most importantly, protect our well fellow risk takers. I'll see you on the upside.